Welcome to the latest episode of Coppercasts, a show dedicated to exploring the wonderful, if somewhat technical, world of institutional investment in digital assets. I'm your host, Fadi Abualfa, Copper's Head of Research, and today our guest is Henry Arslanian, co-founder and managing partner of Nine Blocks Capital. Henri, welcome to Coppercast. It's great to have you. Thank you, Fadi. Thanks for having me on the show. Henri, please tell us a little bit about yourself. I think our listeners would love to hear a bit about your background. I know it's quite interesting, especially coming from the institutional side. First of all, big fun of uh, Copper. So thanks for having me on the show. Uh, you know, as as mentioned, uh, my name is Henry Arslinian, and really my passion and my focus in life is the future of money and the future of the financial industry. And I do this wearing many hats. Uh, one of them is uh, basically as the co-founder and managing partner of Nine Blocks, where we're a very institutionally focused market-neutral crypto hedge fund. Uh, we have a two-year track record. Uh, you know, very focused on being regulated, uh, best in class, institutional focused, and obsessed about uh, operational due diligence as well. Uh, by background, I'm actually a lawyer. I was a hedge fund lawyer for uh, for many years. I started my career in Canada, moved to China, spent a big chunk of it in Hong Kong uh, before as a hedge fund lawyer before moving to a prime brokerage where my specialty was setting up hedge funds. Actually, my first book was how to set up a hedge fund. Uh, so I had, I had the privilege of working on many of the big uh, hedge fund spin-offs, prop desk spin-outs over the years. Uh, and then obviously I discovered crypto in 2013, organized my first Bitcoin event in January 2014. Uh, and uh, since then, obviously, I joined uh, PwC where I started the crypto team and it grew to obviously a big, big global practice. I was an equity partner there. I was the global crypto leader. Uh, but I always realized that there was a need in the market of asset management that is institutional grade, for the digital asset sector. Uh, and I, I would, when I was at PwC, I was having uh, various meetings and conversations with you know, large allocators, whether they're pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, or big families, or a big uh, uh, fund of funds. And they would always tell me the same thing, where they tell me, Henry, we wanna allocate to crypto, but initially we're doing VC type investments. But before we actually start buying Bitcoin or crypto ourselves and put on our balance sheet, we're probably going to invest either via fund of funds or via uh, fund managers. But we have a problem. You know, uh, while many of these fund man managers have a great track record, they're all failing ODD, operational due diligence. Their setup is not institutional grade. And they would always tell me, you know, wink, wink. I mean, you know hedge funds reasonably well and you know uh, crypto reasonably well. You should probably do something. And that's how Nine Blocks was born, where basically, um, you know, we were, we were backed by Nine Mast, which is a billion dollar plus uh, traditional hedge fund uh, based in Hong Kong. Uh, they put in the first uh, $75 million of capital uh, into uh, Nine Blocks. And, and we went to the races with a couple of very strict uh, guidelines. One of them, we had to be regulated, we had to be institutional, and basically we had to operate with all the tier one uh, uh, you know, uh, processes, procedures, and standards that any tier one traditional hedge fund would have, but in a digital asset space, and the, the rest is history. Can you explain to me a little something? Because I've, I've always had a wishy-washy view on how to define this, but what do we mean by institutional? What does that mean for you? It's a very good question, Fadi. And I think one of the problems here is that everybody throws that word around uh, very easily, right? It's even the term I would argue hedge fund. 
uh, you'd be surprised a number of hedge funds that reach out to me uh, and ask me if I'm doing VC investments, for example, right? So I think everybody's throwing the word institutional and even hedge fund and asset management uh, around. Um, you know, our view of being institutional grade is that you are operating at the same institutional standards that would be expected from any tier one player uh, in the traditional hedge fund space. I mean, if you consider that the traditional hedge fund space has anywhere between three to four trillion dollars of assets, uh, when you look at the crypto hedge fund industry, I mean, depending on which data set you're looking at, we're less than 10 or 20 billion dollars right now. So there's over 100x growth to be done uh, for the crypto hedge fund space to even come close uh, to uh, the traditional hedge fund space. And I think for that to happen, there's a couple of things. One of them is really uh, the whether we like it or not. And I know it goes to a lot of our principles of oh, crypto OG of, you know, but we need regulations. One. Uh, second is really being able to provide comfort to investors on key aspects like risk management, counterparty risk, uh, and broader, I would say, uh, you know, a governance within the organization. Um, and I think that's what I think is very, very important. Uh, what I found in my experience uh, in the last two years is that uh, investors obviously care about returns, yeah, that's for sure. But even more than that, they, they want to ensure that the business they're investing in is actually world class and they're not going to wake up one, more, one morning and actually the, 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 the business has exploded because of a, of a basic uh, you know, operational or governance or, or regulatory failure. So I think that's what I mean when it's being uh, institutional. Are we there yet? I would argue we're not. As an industry, we're definitely not. And I think any firm today that claims that they have achieved the pinnacle of being, uh, you know, uh, institutional is, of course, lying. It's it's, a, it's obviously a big work in progress. Uh, you know, I think anybody who goes into crypto, uh, I always tell them, if you're going to join the crypto industry, uh, and but you want to spend your weekends with your wife and kids, you want to have your time off. Do not get into crypto. Obviously, this industry is 24/7, and the same applies in in the crypto hedge fund industry. Uh, you know, obviously, this uh, there's a it's a if you're launching a traditional hedge fund, you'll get your prime brokers, you'll get the service providers, and afterwards, it's pretty much BAU. Uh, of course, there's a lot of trading, but on the operational non-investment side, it's pretty much BAU except the fundraising part. When it comes to crypto hedge funds. It's continuous work in progress. You know, bank accounts gets closed. You need to use new offerings that come up on a counterparty risk mechanism, on custodians, on prime brokerage, whatever that means in crypto, uh, and also all different kinds of uh, conversations with investors. So I think it's a very uh, interesting industry that is really still quite young, but where everything is being built as we speak. What do you think some of the challenges are to actually reach that level of institutional grade that? most people would expect what are what are those hurdles beyond beyond the regulatory ones let's argue that the regulations are sort of in place and we've got favorable regulators and jurisdictions and that includes on ramps and off ramps and banking if we had those in place are we there or is there other something else that needs to be considered and something else that needs to be built yeah, so I think there's a couple of things that putting regulations aside, and I would say even the regulations are not a primary uh, goal we need to aspire. It's really the business setup that we have. Uh, so, for example, uh, I'm still surprised at the number of fund managers that I meet that within the hedge fund, for example, there's no personal account trading policies. 
You know, I mean, this actually you could people are able to run funds where some of the staff could be, you know, either front running or, you know, or, or be able to trade certain uh, assets that the fund is trading, for example. Uh, but I would say there's a lot of challenges there. So there's obviously making sure the mindset is there to be able to have the right structure in place where I've, I've seen personally the biggest uh, difficulty in launching this. Uh, there's been a number of uh, aspects. One of them, uh, I would say the ecosystem still is not ready. And I have to say that I've been very disappointed by a number of the service providers in this ecosystem, where between what is marketed by the marketing and sales team and what is available by the actual business is often day and night, or there's at least discrepancy. Uh, I would say, especially a year, a year and a half, two years ago, when we were looking at launching the business, I've been quite disappointed, actually, from across the spectrum of um, kind of the mis-selling that happens on the on the, on the offerings uh, perspective. Uh, but then I would say is the broader, um, you know, the processes and the policies. Uh, for example, uh, I still meet uh, fund managers who, you know, the portfolio manager has the ability to literally move assets from one place to another uh, by by himself or herself. Uh, whereas you know you need to, you need to have proper policies on cash transfers, asset transfers, uh, and and the like. And the third aspect I would say is even governance. You know uh, I'm still surprised that investors are comfortable uh, investing in in funds where uh, the the portfolio managers control the board, for example. So I think there's a lot of work to be done. I think there's one of them is mindset. Uh, are we have we seen improvement? Hundred uh, percent. And by the way, this is not only from the buy side or the, or the hedge funds, but also by by the uh, let's call it the sell side or the, the exchanges and the counterparties as well. Uh, for me, the probably the most positive thing that I've seen post FTX uh, was that pre FTX, uh, you know, at nine blocks, for example, we have a very thorough onboarding and due diligence process. So before we can even trade with a counterparty, onboard them, uh, there's there's a whole due diligence process that takes place. Um, Pre-FTX, I would go to numerous exchange, ask them questions, and they would literally refuse to answer. And it was basically it's our way or the highway. And you know, if you're not happy with our uh, with the transparency we're providing, go trade somewhere else. Uh, I've been very happy and pleasantly surprised actually how quickly and how open a lot of the big counterparties have been post-FTX, where not only they came up with mechanisms on counterparty risk, uh, on bankruptcy remote structures, but also general transparency. You know, and we can have a whole debate on whether proof of reserves are right way or getting some of the third party independent attestations from, you know, IASA, IASE or SOC certifications. But at least there's been a good will from the industry to do so. Uh, and I think that's a very, very positive trend uh, from the industry. So I think there's a lot of these challenges that are there. Um, are we there yet? No. Uh, but there's been definitely I'm pleasantly surprised by the quality of the work that, that, that what I've seen in the last couple of months. I think they've definitely improved a lot and they've understood that they need to be a little bit more transparent, but that's really an important word, transparency. Transparency and accountability. I suppose one of the benefits of a blockchain, a public blockchain especially, is that everything is recorded. Do you see your business and the whole structure and the future financial market infrastructure shift into a on-chain model or a much more robust mechanism to be able to identify misappropriation, fraud, trades, front running, all of these things. How does the future, how does an on-chain future uh, benefit the financial industry and will we actually get there? Uh, so I think there's two parts uh, of your question, Fadi. If I put my professor hat on for a second, I think we need to look at it from the crypto native industry and then the, the traditional financial industry you mentioned, right? If we look at the on-chain industry, 
I actually think the tools that are available today to ensure regulatory compliance, ensure there's no market manipulation or uh, you know negative bad actors interacting with the ecosystem. I think the tools have become quite good actually. Uh, I think from a there's never you're never going to reach a, a state of it's there's zero risk, but I think we're all in the business of risk management. I would argue today that you know by various metrics you look at uh, that actually the, the the tools that are available today uh, from a compliance perspective, market monitoring perspective, you know even the traceability tools that are available in the crypto space uh, can provide a very reasonable level of comfort. And I think this is one of the reasons uh, we've seen now a crypto and many jurisdictions get comfortable and allow uh, many firms to get licensed uh, as well. Uh, so I think from that perspective, I always say to my students uh, when I teach these courses on crypto. That if you're a criminal and uh, you're a bad actor and you're trying to, uh, you know, launder funds with crypto or do something, uh, you know, criminal activity using crypto, I mean, you're an idiot. Especially with some of these uh, Bitcoin and some of the other layer ones, as we all know, the traceability now uh, is quite advanced. Especially when you try to cash out, I mean, you're way better off using good old cash, using the good old banking system, and law, law firms and client attorney privilege. That, by the way, that has been going on for many decades already. So I think that's on a, on an on-chain, tr- um, you know, uh, uh, transparency perspective. I'm actually very uh, happy of the direction where things are going. When it comes to traditional finance. Uh, this is an area where, especially in my last book as well, the book of crypto, I talk a lot about the topic of uh, tokenization. How can we put the existing financial system on the blockchain or or, or DLT? Um, you don't have to say that um, it's it's. I think it's going to take way longer than people expect. Uh, yes, there's obviously a lot of benefits. Of first of all, tokenization is a no-brainer. In many areas, we're able to provide liquidity that does not exist today. But also, the existing financial system has many benefits in looking at how we can incorporate a DLT. Uh, but unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen uh, anytime soon for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, obviously, uh, these systems are very complex. You know, it's the the Jenga puzzle is actually quite quite elaborate, uh, and it's very difficult to put something new, let alone remove something. Uh, but I think the biggest thing, and this is something that I've seen uh, in my time at PwC, where we were advising many of these financial institutions getting into crypto or exploring DLT, is the professional career risk. You know, if today you're a highly paid uh, individual working in banking or like a stock exchange, uh, the career risk of putting something on like this and the failing is way too high uh, from that perspective. I've seen this over and over. And uh, frankly, right now, if you look at some of the... Um, the initiatives that took place in recent years, the ASX in Australia is a very good example, for example, you know, where uh, obviously that's been pulled out. It's very difficult for any traditional stock exchange, for example, or financial institution to argue that they need to really incorporate a DLT. However, where I think there's a lot of opportunity and where I'm extremely bullish is on the traditional financial institutions launching crypto offerings. Obviously, there's a whole lot of talk right now on the whole ETF space, but I think it's really a matter of time. And this, I think, will happen probably shorter than, uh, sooner than we expect. That a lot of big traditional investment banks will have custody, will offer custody, will offer trading, and will even offer probably derivative instruments on these crypto assets, like they do in other instruments. But I think the the, the upside for them will be crypto rather than DLT for one very and final important reason is that crypto is a PL driver. It allows you to gain new market share, drive revenues, whereas in many cases, uh, you know, tokenization or blockchain is a cost reduction mechanism, 
which anybody who has been any any budget discussion at any bank knows that gets often pushed aside. Uh, and obviously the PNL and new revenue becomes often more important. So I think this is kind of why I think we need to separate the on-chain activity and the traditional finance activity, uh, where I'm very bullish on one and have some thoughts on the second one, uh, depending on the activity we're talking about. You know, it's interesting that you say that. I, I agree with you in the sense that I don't think maybe the banks will push or the traditional asset managers will push the tokenization. I think it's going to come ironically from the regulators. The way I see things right now is that most financial crises that we've, we've faced are mostly due to human error, over-leveraged, manipulation, fraud, and come in the regulators and they come up with something. So that's part of that Jenga puzzle, right? That's, that's what they're doing. If something collapses, they put another brick in there to try and keep it together. And then something else collapses and they put another brick. And so this whole concept of regulated markets, in my opinion, is based on the fact that there's so much counterparty risk involved in the system and there's so little information happening in real time that we're forced to have a complex financial market infrastructure rather than using something like DLT, which can have a simple financial market infrastructure. But let's sidestep that for a second, because that we can open that discussion for the next hour. What are the expectations today from investors in crypto? So we've got we've got all of these headlines with the ETFs, Grayscale winning big against the SEC, and potentially we'll see an ETF soon. What are the expectations here? Is it really going to make a difference? Because we've seen a lot of ETFs launch in various parts of the world, including Europe. It barely made a dent. Why, why is it that the US market would make a difference? Yeah, so I think there's the two elements. And by the way, Fadi, we could discuss the topic you mentioned. I will disagree with you respectfully on the on the regulatory part. I don't think it's going Beautiful. to come by regulators, but we can discuss that in a second. Uh, but I think on, to answer your specific question uh, on the, uh, the 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 element of basically uh, the impact of a P, uh, potential ETF approval, I think now again, I think the consensus view on the street now has become that an ETF will probably be approved. Uh, you know, the, there's a lot of chances it'll happen in 2023, but it's almost certainly it'll happen in 2024. I have to say, first of all, if I put my lawyer hat on, I'm very happy to see that the courts have stepped in. Uh, it's actually, uh, you know, there's a bastion of any democracy is the judiciary. And I'm happy that the courts in this case, at least so far from the time of recording, uh, have played their role in ensuring that uh, regulators do not trespass uh, some of the mandate that they have been given uh, by the legislative branch of the, of, the, of the government. That's one. But I think second, for to answer specifically your question, I think there's, a, there's first of all, I think a financial element and then there's a optics element. On a financial element, yes, you're right. Many jurisdictions, from some in Europe to Canada, I think we have we have great case studies now of spot Bitcoin ETFs being approved. Uh, you know, I mean, you could argue in Canada they had some of them over a billion dollars in the first 24 hours of inflows. I think in the U.S., it's important to understand that uh, for a lot of U.S. investors, that is the easy way to get uh, uh, the exposure, whether it's your 401k or other program uh, plans that you have. Uh, I actually think that the, the market of a Bitcoin spot ETF could be quite uh, quite um, large. However, I think where it has a bigger impact is the optics of it. Uh, it's very interesting if I even if I look at it anecdotally, uh, even in our hedge fund. Uh, the number of conversation, we had a numerous number of conversations with investors, and, and then obviously with FTX, everything slowed down. And it's been very uh, interesting that post the um, BlackRock filing ETF application and post the uh, the court case where the Grayscale 
victory, if you want to call it, uh, there's been really a regain of interest from investors uh, from that perspective, because I think it sends the right signal that actually uh, they, they, there's a catalyst there uh, that could be quite uh, quite interesting. Uh, but I would say more uh, broadly as well, I think we should not, um, there is still uh, investor activity in digital assets. You know, uh, for example, there's still a, a, a allocators allocating to crypto hedge funds, allocating to crypto. Uh, but however, there is definitely a damage that has been done uh, post FTX. And unfortunately, I don't think this is going to go away anytime soon. Uh, you know, the, the 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 loss, the trial of SBF is going to start in October. This is going to be all over the news again. And unfortunately, there's probably a lot of other crazy developments and uh, the scoops that will come out on SBF over that, that period, right? And the media is going to love it. And unfortunately, the crypto industry, while we are now starting to recover from the damage caused by FTX, unfortunately, I think this is going to continue because of the trial and God knows how many Netflix documentaries will come up on FTX. God knows how much media coverage will be on the topic. And I think that that's the, the, the damage to the industry will still continue for some time, unfortunately. What's the next sort of narrative then for crypto and for institutions, institutional investors to come in? Let's argue that an ETF and the SBF kind of balance things out and we're still on a neutral footing. What is that next narrative that's going to bring a positive returns in the crypto market. Let, I don't even know, do you think we're going to see a bull market like we've seen in the past? Do you think Bitcoin will remain that volatile when you've got a lot more liquidity being injected into the system? Or are we going to see a slow appreciation of the crypto space? How, how do you see that and how are you positioning yourself in, in these scenarios? And this is a topic, of, I'm happy you raise it because uh, I, I, I think about this a lot because when we think about the future of the industry in the various newsletters that I write, a lot of the, my own podcasts, this is a topic that often I think it's very, very important that what is the future going to look like? The way I personally approach it is, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, by background, I'm, I'm Armenian and there, there's a saying we have that says, that means elevate yourself and elevate others with you, right? And I think what each one of us in the crypto ecosystem, whether we are service providers, buy side, sell side, journalists, uh, you know, investors, or uh, people listening to this podcast, for example, is doing the right thing. If we all do the right thing and actually really build and focus on 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 the great on the on building our businesses first of all properly, respecting the rules and building things the way they should, uh, actually sends the right message and we all move forward. Uh, I, I still really there's nothing that bothers me more. Then, for example, I st I'll go somewhere and I'll see somebody who's like shelling a stupid shitcoin or a stupid, uh, you know, literally scams. They're still going around, uh, whether as different conferences or, or, or stuff, people that are mis-selling uh, or people that are simply, uh, you know, uh, behaving a bit like anarchists, if you want, and not not kind of uh, with no respect on the broader crypto community. I find, unfortunately, the damage that uh, can be done by such other events could be quite material. This is why I think I generally believe that we should each one of us do what we believe is right and stick to it and inherently we will elevate others. So for, I'll give you a very simple example. At our fund uh, at Nine Blocks, we made a very critical decision that we we generally, we cut no corners and we try to build the leading institutional grade asset management firm. Uh, and this applies from the whole various things that we discussed uh, today, but also on the personal level as well. You know, I still uh, write books about crypto. I still teach university crypto. Uh, the two, three months, uh, two, three weeks in December, I'll be back in Hong Kong teaching my students a whole 36-hour course. I'm working now actually on a on a book, a comic book for teenagers, how to educate teenagers on Web3. 
And I don't do this because I'm a loser. I have no life. I mean, I'm, I'm probably a loser. I have no life. Uh, but it's also because I, this is the kind of stuff that we need to all give our contribution uh, for the greater good of the ecosystem. And I have to say that the vast majority of the ecosystem, uh, people like yourselves and others, are doing the right thing. But like any other industry, you're always going to have one or two bad apples. And of course, the focus goes on these individuals. But the way uh, to actually ensure that this doesn't happen, there's obviously a whole broader policy discussion, but each one of us should do the right thing and call out when we see, you know, uh, individuals not doing the right thing. I still remember very vividly, uh, uh, you know, I've been in crypto uh, since 2014, like I mentioned earlier, uh, the first, uh, my some of the first crypto events I would go on stage and say, guys, we need to have basic compliance. I'm not saying let's let's copy and paste what we have from TradFi, but we need to ensure that bad actors are not using this ecosystem. And I remember I used to get booed on stage. And of course, I mean, the rest is history. Now we all know what happened. And obviously we need basic uh, compliance, but uh, I think we need to take this, these measures, or if not, uh, these can all set the industry back uh, two, three years, exactly like how it would happen with FTX. You know, I think the industry took a step to three years back, uh, but, and we will recover. I still very uh, remember when Mt. Gox went bankrupt. I remember I was, I discovered Bitcoin a couple of months earlier, and I really thought when Mt. Gox happened, I said, ah, it's too bad. You know, this was a very good experiment. And I really believe this thing could have worked, you know? And of course, the industry recovered, and we've seen this over and over over the years. But I think it's all important that we all focus on doing the right thing, and we and we work on it, and we will, uh, and it will pay off. And you know, one thing as well uh, that I also tell to my students as well is, anybody who's in crypto right now, including yourself and others, will probably listen to this podcast, will be in crypto in five, 10, 15 years. And uh, it's so important that you have your own reputation and your own integrity. Uh, the number of conversations I have on crypto today that are genuinely based on the goodwill and the hard work that we have done over the last couple of years. And I think anybody who's in this bear market working on crypto right now will be in the industry in five, 10 years. So I think this is where if you do the right thing, you continue working hard and actually try to build the finance of the future, try to build the future of finance. You know, uh, I think this will pay off uh, not only for yourself, but also for the ecosystem as well. I've got two questions. What do you tell your students in terms of monetary policy, central banks, and why they should care about Bitcoin. And the second question is, do you think that the current structure of regulations in relation to compliance is maybe overregulated and to the point of strangulation where it's costing $10,000 roughly per employee at a bank just for compliance, where we see suspicious activity reports grow by multiples over the last couple of years, even though 99% of them are false. How do we create a system where the financial markets aren't bogged down by compliance measures against people who are doing the right thing? Uh, two excellent questions. Let me address the first one and move on to the second one. On the students, so I think the problem that many people do in crypto is, is exactly like you asked the question, what do you tell students? I think the right thing to do is actually not to tell them anything, but actually listen to them. And, uh, you know, I think the biggest mistake that I see when I talk to regulators, central bankers, uh, or, you know, policymakers, they always tell me, ah, oh, Henry, the crypto industry is doing this, and we told them not to do this. Uh, but I often ask them, did you listen to them? And uh, this is, I think, one thing that uh, when you talk to young people, uh, I see it especially with my students at university, is they have been kind of 
not only treated unfairly, but when they look at their own future, you know, many of students today graduate university, they will never be able to afford a house. Uh, they're not going to be able to live the way actually their parents did, for example. They're probably worse off than their generation before them. But also when you look at the financial system today, um, they may not be financial excluded per se, uh, but they're definitely not feeling included uh, from that perspective. So I think that's the one thing that, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the students, we often have to listen to them. And I'll give you an example. Uh, be, at the beginning of each one of my classes, and I've been doing, I've been teaching this crypto course in 2015 and I asked the question every year since then. I often ask the students, what is the most valuable asset that you have? For example, in recent years, they tell me it's video game assets. Often these students are young, right? And for them, it's in-game assets. They have a special skin or they have a special weapon or something like that. Or, you know, and that's why for them, often the concept of NFT, for example, is actually very natural. Uh, you know, when I when when I explain to them DeFi and wow, I'm able to trade with somebody with no counterparty. Okay, this is actually with no counterparty risk. You know, this is actually stuff that it resonates more uh, with them uh, on, on that perspective. So I think the really the most important thing is to listen to them, uh, because I really believe that this. Um, we are, we have created, and we are creating a generation that is maybe not financially excluded, but that is definitely not feeling included. Which comes to your second question on, I think, the um, regulatory framework: uh, Is the current regulatory regulatory regime in traditional finance uh, working? I would argue, many cases, some cases yes, many cases no. Uh, you know, I think some of them. I mean, we all know that, uh, for example, we all talk about money laundering and crypto. Uh, but, you know, according according to the United Nations, every year there's between 800 billion to 2 trillion that are being laundered to the existing system. That's about between 2 to 5 percent of, of global GDP. Uh, and also, I think there's a bit of uh, unfairness as well. Uh, for example, uh, you know, I have a personally problem when, let's say, we are banning anybody who's born in Iran, anybody who's born in, in Libya, in Syria or Lebanon. You know, often these people have no, it's not their fault that the Iranian regime is what it is, or the North Korean today has nothing to do with the regime, for example, right? Unfortunately, I think we put this blanket um, uh, uh, compliance uh, frameworks in place, especially when it comes to AML and, and others that I think are, may not be uh, as appropriate from that perspective. You mentioned elements like suspicious transaction reporting, right? Uh, of course, the current system, when you look at it in many regards, does not make sense. If your name is, you know, Muhammad Ali, for example, or Brian Jones or any typical name, for sure there'll be a flag, you know? Uh, so then uh, th I think the system uh, benefits a lot of firms that are in the compliance business, benefits legal firms, uh, regulatory firms, uh, but I'm not sure necessarily um, it, uh, it makes the industry more secure. It's, gr it's great for allowing firms to say that they've done their best, uh, but I'm not sure it's, um, it's actually... Uh, uh, solving the real issue that, that we want to solve. Now, is um, is crypto better? You know, uh, I would argue that, uh, and I've, you know, obviously uh, I've had the privilege of working with many crypto firms over the years, that many crypto companies have probably better KYC and AML than many traditional financial institutions, right? Because they're able to leverage the latest regulatory technology, legal technology, and also different mindset as well in many of their processes and procedures. Uh, you know, so I think there's a, there's a lot of work to be done there. And also, uh, I think we, this is not a thing that's going to be solved tomorrow morning, but we also need to work with the regulators. You know, again, I have the privilege of training many regulators over the years uh, since 2015 from IOSCO to various regulators. I still actually give training over the years. Uh, and many regulators are actually, in my own experience, the average regulator that I speak with is more knowledgeable on crypto than the average financial services professional. 
But you know, it's the regulators are in a very tough spot, uh, and this actually comes to your comment you made earlier uh, that you know, can they really? Uh, force technology? Not really. Uh, do they want to regulate crypto? Yes. Uh, are they trying their best in many cases? Yes. Uh, but it's also we have to understand it's not easy as well. So I think whether we like it or not, there will be periods of crypto that there'll be some incidents. For sure, there'll be some AML incidents, scandals over the next couple of months and years in crypto. It's normal. We are not in the risk of what we can never do zero risk. We're in the risk management uh, uh, business. Uh, but I, I, I hope uh, that we will be able to achieve uh, proper compliance or risk management using some of the te new technologies that we have uh, that are not being used today by in traditional finance. My point on the regulations and the regulators actually trying to probably promote a blockchain system, a transparent and accountable system, is maybe it's not today, but in the next crisis, we're going to face, we haven't faced a proper economic crisis yet. And if we look at 2000, 2008, um, and we go back even, it's always something related to record keeping that completely fall, makes everything fall apart. And so at some point is in the next financial crisis, if it's once again fraud, manipulation, bad record keeping, all of these things are the cause of a financial collapse. Will regulators not say, wait a second, perhaps there's a better tool that we can use, and maybe that's blockchain. Do you not think that might ring in their ears and they might say, you know what, we need a better transparent system that makes everyone accountable and we can actually see what's going on inside when someone like Artigos takes a over-collateralized, rehypothecated 60,000 times and putting a globally systemic important bank at risk, which now doesn't exist. Uh, yes and no, because of course, in the ideal world, I agree with you, Fadi, but I think that if regulators want to impose DL blockchain, it's great. But unless all the instruments that are traded are also the data is available on chain, it's very difficult to, to make that happen. And I don't think that we're going to be able to move the entire, uh, you know, the trillions of dollars that move around every day uh, on blockchain anytime soon, unfortunately. So I think if, if we had an entire... Uh, blockchain-based ecosystem, of course, I think that it, that would be the right thing to do. Uh, but I don't think that the, the solution to any future crisis uh, would be uh, blockchain technology uh, for these reasons. However, I mean, um, is it an alternative? I think the on a on a macro perspective, what I like about cryptocurrencies, for example, even Bitcoin, is that you know uh, maybe not from a regulatory perspective, but for everyday people, it gives them it gives them an option. It gives them this alternative that they can use if they don't, if they are disenchanted from the traditional financial system. You know, today, if you look at countries like Turkey with crazy inflation, uh, you know, from Zimbabwe to Argentina, where, you know, stable coins now are really being used on a day-to-day -day basis. To the, and as much as the government wants, they cannot stop it. Or if you go somebody like in Cyprus, for example, or Lebanon, who have literally people have lost everything via the existing banking system. And look at Lebanon, for example, you know, where, uh, frankly, I mean, so many people have lost everything. Uh, but is blockchain the solution? Probably not. But do people at least now understand the importance of having an alternative uh, that is not a central bank, uh, you know, uh, that is not the banks that are regulated by a central bank on tools like Bitcoin, for example? I think that at least people gives them the chance. But unfortunately, you know, uh, there will be another crisis for sure. I think that's normal. Uh, but is blockchain the solution to all of it? Unfortunately, I don't think so. You said the word crisis, and that's an important word. I think crisis seems to be a very synonymous, at least with crypto and in regions that are in, in stress. 
So they kind of shift towards these alternative options. Do you think in the next financial crisis, a in a global financial crisis, that Bitcoin might be viewed as an alternative and everyone might be disenchanted if suddenly the markets drop by 50, 60% while interest rates are at 7.5% and taxes are going up because they have to pay for these, these massive um, gaps in debt and hitting, what, 33 trillion right now? Do you think there's going to be a point where everyone's going to be so disenchanted that a little bit of Bitcoin might actually be the the vote of you know revolt against such systems and central banks that we've closed and we've seen in the u.s close several central banks being closed we've all, we've, what three central banks have closed we've got one more left do you think do you think we're going to reach something like that you know i think it's a very delicate question because uh, there's uh, whether we like it or not in crypto in 2023 you know, in the previous years, we used to talk about the entry of institutional players, the rise of stable coins, the rise of DeFi, you know, the rise of NFTs. I think one of the big topics that I'm watching for 2024 is geopolitics. And this may sound very stupid, but I, I really believe now that whether we like it or not, geopolitics, and that obviously trickles down to policymaking, has a massive role to play. So, for example, obviously, like many uh, many uh, of the listeners, um, you know, when I travel, you know, when I speak to somebody in Lebanon, for example, I speak to somebody in, in Turkey, I speak to somebody in Latin America, I mean, they don't trust their institutions. I mean, I was giving the example before that when I, when I teach to my students, I make a point to often listening to them. I mean, you just need to, you don't need to you know, listen to anybody in these in these markets and, you know, you understand how the pain they went through on that side. So I think there's definitely, a, for certain markets, this is going to resonate. What I find a bit ironical, ironic is that many of the big push that is happening on digital assets is actually coming from countries where, you know, people reasonably trust their central banks. You know, if you're, you know, the Middle East, there's Asia, your Europe, even North America to, to a certain extent, people trust their central banks, right? Uh, so I think that's uh, one thing. The one thing I'm, I think it's going to be very interesting to watch, uh, I don't think it'll be driven by a crisis, uh, but I think it'll be uh, the debate around uh, topics that are people care about, for example, privacy, especially in the context of CBDCs. I'm convinced that maybe it's not this presidential cycle, maybe it's another next presidential cycle in the US and for sure in other countries around the world, uh, there will be a very strict referendum on whether we want central bank digital currencies or not. Uh, and this actually is where geopolitics comes in as well. If you look at a country like China, you have over a billion users now that are on the ECNY. India has launched CBDC efforts less than a year ago is extremely advanced. I would argue it's probably now second in the country in the world when it comes to how advanced and from a usage perspective of their CBDC. And obviously we are seeing now other smaller country here and there really do a lot of initiatives on that front. So there's, I think, ironically, Bitcoin is the exact opposite of a CBDC where it's government controlled, it's central bank, there's a lot of transparency, they control, but it's such a powerful tool that I think it's inevitable that we're gonna have um, a CBDC that will be mainstream. Now it's going to become very interesting geopolitically, whereas in certain countries, a CBDC will be implemented and people will not question it too much or they could not question it that much. In other countries, this will be a very important uh, societal debate, like we've had, by the way, think about the US where you've had issues like uh, abortion, for example, others that have really kind of, really people have a very strong opinions uh, on, on, on either side. I think you're going to have the same thing on CBDCs. Uh, and that I think is going to be very, very interesting to watch. I think the geopolitic elements of crypto, and when I mean crypto here, I mean digital assets. And I it includes uh, CBDCs, it includes Bitcoin, and in the middle it also includes stable coins, uh, where people now have an alternative 
to being, uh, you know, instead of in, in to when countries or people want to go into a dollarized economy using stable coins. I think that's uh, uh, stable coins are way more powerful than I think many people think. And the impact that it can have on especially non G20 countries could be quite significant on that perspective. So uh, I don't think it'll be next crisis that will drive it. Uh, but I think there's a lot of these big macro elements happening in crypto uh, from the rise of stable coins and especially CBDCs that may have an impact on the broader crypto ecosystem and how it's going to unfold remains to be seen. What about yielding stable coins? I think people are beginning to question that these banks are are not really ponying up what, what the interest rates really reflect. And then you've got tech giants like Apple stroll in and in a couple of months they've got over 10 billion in deposits I mean that's pretty big and they haven't even pushed it that much but, and they've they've got what I think 118 million users in the US just in the US alone they, they haven't really pushed it at all they've got 10 billion in a couple of months and their whole ecosystem like Apple Pay and Apple Cash now and just going and tap to pay I think that's a big user experience conundrum for crypto because how do you beat tap to pay with Apple without Apple? No, and absolutely. I think the big tech firms, their role will be very, very interesting because uh, if you look initially, these big tech firms are not stupid either, right? I mean, we've seen it with uh, Libra, you know, and everything that Meta and was doing uh, back in the day. Uh, but I think the uh, that project died. Why? Because it, it was too powerful, you know, if, 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 it, if it succeeded. By the way, which I find, uh, I really believe that June 2019, which is the day Libra was launched, uh, will go down in the history of money as a pivotal moment that really catalyzed everything we're seeing right now on, on the topic of CBDCs, for example. Uh, but I think for a lot of the, the, let's call them the Web2 large tech firms, um, it's almost a no-brainer that they have to look into the space, right? Uh, because obviously a lot of the Web3 ecosystems are being created directly challenging. Uh, you know, I'll give a very good example. Uh, you know, myself, I have been producing uh, social media crypto content for the last five, six years. I have half a million followers on LinkedIn alone, you know, from my podcast, from my shows, right? Uh, the day tomorrow, if LinkedIn or YouTube doesn't like me, I'm out. All the content that I've created, everything that I've put in place disappears, basically. I don't own my content, you know? And uh, and so that's one problem, but also listeners. Like, for example, people are listening to this podcast why are you not being compensated for making a decision to listen to this copper podcast and not listen to something something else, for example? And I really believe that we will be able not only control our identity and aspects like that, but also be able to monetize our eyeballs time and our I don't know, ear, ear time, whatever. Uh, and actually, this is going to be possible in a Web3 ecosystem, which obviously disrupts the business model of a lot of these, these big uh, tech firms, right? Uh, so I think that's going to be very, very interesting on that perspective. Am I surprised to see I mean, the latest one is obviously PayPal that announced its initiatives on the stablecoin side. Uh, but I'm not surprised to see their, their um, entry into the space and they're pushing more into the space. Um, but I think it's it's there's definitely an opportunity for them. But it's also, I would argue, in many cases, kind of existential as well on that perspective. A content creator like me, if today there was a good Web3 option, I would switch on it. There's obviously then the whole scale where, where the audience is, is a whole phenomenon, right? Uh, but it's... Uh, uh, you know, think about the number of people who create content on YouTube, for example. And you know, it's quite expensive to create content uh, who are not be able to not able to make ends meet, for example, because of uh, the way the 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 Web two ecosystem works, if you want, right? So I think that's quite important on that perspective. And again, once again, it comes back to asking people. You know, when I when I travel or ask my nephews, my nieces, you know, like what they watch, for example, right? 
and you look at how people have affection towards their YouTube celebrities or YouTube content creators, right? And you look at the impact some of these individuals or genuine content creators on TikTok are having, for example, I think it's going to have a very big impact on the rest of the traditional uh, players if the Web3 ecosystems are in place. Do you think Twitter is going to be a big space within that? Do you think uh, Twitter might become a Web 2.5? It remains to be seen. Uh, you know, uh, I have to say, like everybody else in crypto, we have to be on Twitter now called X for that's where a lot of the crypto activity takes place. I've had over the years a lot of personal issues as well with uh, with Twitter. And I have to say with a lot of the social media platforms, uh, like anybody else in crypto, and especially if you're uh, uh, you create content, you're you're attacked by scammers every day. Uh, so in an average month, there's between twenty to one hundred thousand dollars that people are being scammed because of me, obviously not me. But because of fake Henry accounts that are out there. I even did a podcast episode on that where a victim finally accepted to come forward and talk about it. And, um, you know, for a long time, Twitter refused to verify my account. And the process was very, it was, it was not possible. They didn't tell you why it was refused. And I had to tell them, guys, like people are getting scammed every day. And unless you verify it, it's going to really, you're kind of uh, participating to this uh, element. Uh, to this, the, the fraud that's taking place. And uh, it, basically, I was able to do it when uh, finally they launched a pay-to-play system where I was able to pay for it. I have the same problem right now with Instagram, for example, where I don't use it professionally, but there's tons of fake Henry accounts out there uh, that, are, that are scamming people, right? So I think that's a big issue uh, I have on these Web2 platforms. Uh, what, how is Twitter going to evolve? I think it's going to be very, very interesting. I think it has a lot of potential. Uh, and I think its biggest advantage, right? One of its big advantages is that there's no alternative. Uh, like many people, you know, when uh, Threads launched uh, from uh, Instagram, from Meta, I immediately created a page direct. I think as content creators, we have no choice. We have to be and at least give it a chance and give it a try to see. Um, you know, I don't think the, the traction has been the same as uh, as with other platforms, as it could have been, right? But so I think Twitter has still a big edge. Whether it's going to be able to capture the opportunity uh, remains to be seen. Henry. Let's wrap this uh, podcast up with three of the things that you're excited about for the rest of the year and going into the Bitcoin halving happening in a short eight to nine months. You know, I've been in the crypto space for so long that I remain very, very committed to the, the future of money and future of finance. You know, I really believe that we are living a historical period in the history of money. Uh, our kids or our grandchildren will ask us about this period right now. They will say, uh, Grandpa Fadi, how was it being uh, in crypto when uh, the halvening was happening? You know, and uh, we went from, you know, 12.5 to 6.25 and, you know, 3.50. Oh, my God, Bitcoin every every uh, block. And, you know, FTX, what was this thing? You know, these are big historical moments that we're, our people are going to study in a couple of years. And I think it's a privilege uh, that we have not only able, we're not we're able to witness it, that we have a, a, the privilege to shape it in a way. And I really am grateful for that opportunity every day. This this doesn't happen in many lifetimes. It doesn't happen to everybody. I think all of us right now in crypto, we have the privilege to shape it in our in various uh, uh, you know in various ways. Uh, so I, I remain very optimistic on the future of the industry. Uh, I think there are challenges. I think challenges will continue. Uh, but I think we should never forget why we're doing this. And again, it comes back to my initial thought of what excites me about the, the students, right? You know, I, like I was mentioning, we have to listen to them. And I think when we listen to people and we think about the bigger picture here, when we think about the future of finance, the future of money, uh, I mean, if even if you don't like CBDCs, we are seeing the periods of a third form of central bank money, for example. With DeFi now, we have literally over $50 billion are genuinely assets that are happening without any uh, intermediaries. 
with stable coins. You know, people are able to send money from one, one part of the world to the other instantaneously on a 24-7, even on Sundays. Because I don't know, I'm not able to transfer money on Sunday with my bank. I guess my bank goes to church, you know. So we have, we're able to address some of these issues right now that we are not. And this is a very, I think, interesting part. We have, we have to all continue doing what we're doing, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, working in our different businesses, educating, empowering, but also doing the right thing. So I'm, I remain very optimistic despite the challenges that are coming ahead. Henry, thank you so much for being on our show. It's been a great chat and I hope our audience has learned a couple of things. Thanks for letting us uh, share our passion of the future of finance uh, with your audience. Thank you. As always, we appreciate you tuning into Coppercasts. Follow me for regular updates on cryptocurrency macro research, digital assets and distributed financial market infrastructure. My handle is at Fadi Abuelfa. Thank you to my producer, Kate Light, for continued support. And if you would want to get in touch, email us at marketing at copper.co or find us on Twitter at Copper HQ.